people chose to express that sense of not feeling looked after and not trusting those governing them by wanting to pull back the area of government to their own locality and, and do it themselves. Hello there and welcome back to the Oxford PPE Society podcast. We are releasing these episodes every Friday at 9am until the end of Trinity term in June and you can find them via our website, our SoundCloud or our Facebook page. Every week we will be in discussion with leading figures from the fields of philosophy, politics or economics. We hope that they will provide regular enjoyment in these uncertain times. I'm Leon Askow and this week I'm joined by Bronwyn Maddox, the current director of the Institute for Government. Bronwyn has had a glittering career in the media and now at the Institute, which works to promote better government by focusing on how it is led and how it makes decisions. Previously, she was the editor and chief executive of Prospect, a leading current affairs magazine, and also worked as an editor at The Times. As a result, she is well placed to offer a unique insight into how Britain is governed. The fate of Brexit, the integrity of our democracy and the rise of nationalism are three key developments in Britain today. We spoke about how to respond to these pressing challenges, first by exploring the common roots of nationalism around the United Kingdom. I think the nationalism came out of people feeling that in whatever way their interests weren't being respected or pursued by the people governing them, and therefore felt that if they ran their own place, however they defined that, that they would be better looked after. So I think, you know, whether whether that's Scotland feeling that about the rest of the UK and the, the UK government in Westminster, or the UK overall and England feeling that about the, the EU, people chose to express that sense of not feeling looked after and not trusting those governing them by wanting to pull back the area of government to their own locality and, and do it themselves. So I think that's really what it's got in common. It's not uh, in neither case of Scotland nor England was it very engaged in um, economic debate. The points when the Scottish nationalism has seemed to be very inspired by what Scotland could make out of its oil and, and fish and things like that, but with the oil price now negative, that, that argument has fallen away. But it was never a real driving force in it, I think. This has really been about people feeling that they wanted to run their own place and didn't trust and didn't like the government that they were being given. Why do you think these constituent parts of the UK don't have a sense of national community and solidarity? Why is it that Scotland is more, feels that it's Scotland and it's not British? Well, I think many people there do. And, and after all, there still seems to be a majority of people in Scotland just who uh, want to stay with the rest of the UK. And that doesn't mean that those who want independence don't feel a sense of Britishness. They're just being asked a choice of what form of government. You know, there are long, long histories behind this. And these are very, you know, parts of the country that have very, very separate histories. And it's not surprising that they feel that those histories separate them from the whole of it, if you like. I wouldn't go so far as to say people don't have a sense of Britishness. They might not have a sense of Englishness if they come from one of the other nations. So I'm thinking my father, who was very Welsh, would certainly call himself British, never English. I wouldn't overstate that, but I think this is an expression of desire and greater trust, whether right or wrong, in government closer to home. Why do you say that's part of the nationalist divide, that Britain is too English, it's too dominated by England, and not enough has been done to spread responsibility around? I'm not even sure I would go that far. I mean, this is a centralised country, the UK, and inevitably enormously dominated by England, you know, which is much, much bigger and has London in it and the capital and the kind of seat of the national government and so on. 
We've had, you know, quite a bit be done in the way of devolution and sending more powers out there. Most thought out in the case of Scotland and obviously a lot thought out in the case of, of, of Northern Ireland, where that was and both of those settlements going back more than 20 years. Uh, least thought out in the case of Wales, which has been playing a kind of constitutional catch up. Uh, particularly with Scotland all the way along, uh, and gets proportionately less money. And I think that there, there is, you can hear a sort of sense of grievance rising there, both on the financial and the, the kind of constitutional powers front. But, you know, it was a big debate when Tony Blair did this 20 years ago, feeling that uh, he had to, so some people saying this will calm all such demands and others saying, no, it's the thin end of the wedge. It's, it's the route, it's the, the roadmap to independence for these. And I think we you know, we don't know um, where people want to take this in the devolved nations, but I wouldn't say it's a done deal either way. To what extent do you think nationalisms in Wales, Scotland are about sort of just how they're treated by Westminster or is some of the practical aspects of just economic inequality more significant? Neither. It doesn't do justice to the nationalism to say it's all about um, resentment of England or uh, not being given enough money or something I think you're trying to write a kind of victim narrative there. I think a lot of it is a sense of history, of identity, of pride. And I particularly think of Wales and, and Scotland. Northern Ireland is different, I think, because of the very particular circumstances of trying to keep keep the peace, literally, between two communities that for a long time have loathed each other. And actually the, the astonishing achievement of that, of getting people who had loathed each other, regarded each other as alien tribes and uh, uh, and been associated with groups who had killed each other, uh, getting those people to sit down together and form a government, I think, I think it's pretty astonishing, even 20 years on, and even though it's had a bit of a, a bumpy record. It is about a desire for independence, particularly in Scotland, and a belief that Scotland would be, somehow be a more grown-up country if it uh, if it ran its own affairs. I think in Wales it's more di- difficult because the different parts of Wales are almost like many different countries themselves. It, it uh, doesn't hang to the north and the south and the west and the middle. They're all distinctly different. Different industrial traditions, different uh, different social traditions, different religious traditions. It, it's a very complex, small place, uh, which is one of the reasons I think in, uh, that a nationalist movement hasn't got going with as much strength there. But I think they are poorer than England, but to see it all as an argument about inequality or resentment, I think, is to underplay the kind of positive forces that are leading some people to make these arguments. Do you think Brexit will have quite a significant effect on nationalism? Where do you think that might be more significant around the UK? Yeah, the Scots didn't want to leave Europe. And Nicola Sturgeon has used that as a big argument for uh, trying to promote Scottish independence and say that we could join Europe as an independent small nation. And I think, yes, it, it does, Brexit does exacerbate those, those divisions within the UK. It, to my mind, actually, the greatest strain is on Northern Ireland. The question of the border is essentially unresolved, uh, of, how, of how to handle that without friction. Uh, I mean, there is going to be more friction. I think it will. And I think the impact on Wales, both on the manu- manufacturing and on farming, has yet to be seen. But that could really be very painful and can only partly be assuaged with money from London. It really, Brexit could be an enormous shock to particularly farming, which is a big part of Wales, if, if some trade deal isn't done, as it may not be at the end of the year. So I think we haven't seen the full impact yet there. But I think the coronavirus has almost overtaken that and it has at least made its own argument for kind of cooperation 
and the four nations have been cooperating very closely over coronavirus. So at the moment, the forces are kind of pulling things together rather than pushing apart, I think. In Ireland, the concept of a united Ireland has resurfaced with renewed vigour. How seriously should we take this idea? Is it likely? Brexit has, has exacerbated, as, as, as you were asking, has exacerbated that. Um, it's forced people in Northern Ireland to say in a way that many wanted to avoid saying whether they feel more uh, British or more Irish. And the skill of the, the Northern Ireland Belfast Agreement was that it, it fudged all that and it allowed people to be both or neither, not to, force, to, not to force that question on people, to allow a fluidity and to allow multiple identities. And Brexit suddenly comes along and says, you know, what do you want? When I've been over in Northern Ireland last year, quite a bit talking to business people there, even those who would describe themselves as passionate unionists, many of the farmers are, who are big supporters of the DUP, what they really wanted was no border with the Republic because that was so important to their, their trade. It's brought that home. And then you've got all kinds of demographic issues on top of the, the, the population gradually becoming more Catholic. It's not that every Catholic wants reunification, but the Catholic political parties are the ones that identify themselves that way. Yes, it's set in motion a set of things that strengthen the push for that. And here I think Westminster has found it very hard to keep paying Northern Ireland enough attention. People in Whitehall and in Parliament who get Northern Ireland really get it. But it's funny how easily it drops out of the conversation or people think that that's just too difficult, it's special, let's not talk about that, let's talk about Great Britain but not Northern Ireland. It does easily get left out in terms of bureaucratic attention, political attention, and it needs vast quantities of both because it's really hard to keep these arrangements running. Do you think the surprise removal of Julian Smith from the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland post has highlighted the fact that Northern Ireland maybe isn't the priority for the government? I think it was sudden rather than a surprise. He had clashed with the Prime Minister on several things, not Northern Ireland. I don't know. I don't think it means it's not a priority, but I don't think it was a helpful step because he had invested a lot and he had actually managed to help get the assembly back functioning after after about three years. So, you know, the place does take kind of big characters from Westminster to come and show that they are interested and committed to trying to resolve the many inevitable uh, disagreements. Rather than that and the personnel, I would look to the our lack of detail, perhaps, in the government's account of how the Northern Ireland Protocol, as it's called, in the agreements with uh, Europe is going to work. Uh, the Prime Minister's made quite a lot of assertions that, there's, look, there's not going to be friction, but um, there's really quite a gulf on how this is going to work with the Europeans at the moment. And if we end up with no trade deal at the end of this year or uh, at any other point, that really could be quite quite painful on the strains. But I wouldn't say that the government the government knows it's a big issue. It just, at the point when all that was happening, had even bigger issues, which was so-called getting bre- Brexit done. On the other side, there's Ireland itself. The Republic also is very significant for them. What do you think their perspective on the whole on-the-border issue is? Do they see a united Ireland as something that would be ideal? There's obviously many who've um, dedicated their lives to the idea of a united Ireland. You'd find quite a few over the years and recently who said, um, yes, but not yet. Um, We used to be poor, now we're rich, we're successful, Um, the North is living on public subsidies, and we... uh, really worried about importing what might be a very angry unionist population or some parts of it and reigniting the troubles. So there's a lot of wariness. Polls seem to suggest a growing support for it. But I think this is something that where the things that are changing are changing in the north rather than the south. 
You also mentioned at the appetite for public spending. How do you think coronavirus will affect that appetite? Because it's shown that money can be found, but also there's something to be said that this, this amount of money can only be found once. I don't know about once. And part of the point of it is that interest rates are very, very low. So while people are sort of describing a theoretical peril, it's um, possibly in the future. My feeling, and this really can only be a feeling at this point, as the virus really begins to get under control, people are going to start to look at the huge amounts that the government has spent on this. And my senses deal look at this more as a crisis and a one-off response. There is, I think, going to be a lot more demand for spending on public health and on social care, and, and probably a willingness for higher taxes to, to pay for that. But I don't think, in the way that Jeremy Corbyn was saying before he stepped down, oh, look, this vindicates everything I was saying about much, much, much higher government spending. I would be surprised, as I said, when the, the virus begins to get under control, sit up and think, really, what does this mean for future debt and for younger part of the population, which is going to be paying off this? And what do we do to you know, get that back under control, whether it's inflation or something else. I think you'll have really quite a lively economic debate about how to deal with the consequences of this. And it won't feel like license to dramatically transform the size of the state, you know, forever after, with some exceptions. And the health and social care, I think, is, is absolutely, absolutely part of that. How do you think it'll change the public's perception of how it prioritises key workers that we have today, not just health people, but people delivering things around the country? and jobs that tend to be underappreciated, do you think there'll be a long-lasting change in attitudes as to how they're treated by the state? It's a really interesting question. I know I think we're going to have quite an interesting discussion of who key workers are. All the more coming out of the lockdown than going into it as people begin to look at well, what's necessary and what can, you, what can you loosen up. On health workers, I think there will be an awful lot more attention on uh, protection and, and rights of, of their actual safety. On payment, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not sure. It, really, the debate can go either way. And it may be that the government and the public feel that we need kind of more health workers rather than much better paid ones. It could go either way. But there's obviously a huge appetite for looking after people in, in health who are risking their lives at the moment for the benefit of other people. No, I think there'd be a rather fluid sense of what key workers are. As I said, some of the ones you're, you're, you're talking about in the gig economy are probably some of the ones doing well. But equally, you've got uh, ones in the gig economy and, and in restaurants and, and hospitality and, and so on, whose jobs have been annihilated through this. So I think it's going to be quite a, a slow process of the country collectively working out what's going to survive and what it wants to survive. How important do you think is the presence of quite a strong, or well, not strong, but vocal opposition and coherent opposition in this in the Labour Party with and how effective do you think Keir Starmer will be in providing that Labour opposition? Uh, it matters a lot. It matters a lot to, to you know to challenge the, the government on all kinds of things. I think Keir Starmer's made a, a much stronger start than Jeremy Corbyn ever really got to. He looks plausible. He's picked plausible people around him. He's got the tone right, which is challenging the government without seeming to undermine it. He's picked, I mean, slightly controversial, a sort of steady list of questions like, where is the exit strategy? That may be a bit unfair. In, the, in my view, it, there can't be a single grand exit strategy. Uh, just too much is uncertain. It's going to have to be a, a sort of iterative process of edging forwards. But he's picked, but politically, it's, I think, absolutely sensible. He's picked that. And then his deputy, Angela Rain, has been going very strongly on the protection for health workers. 
it, it makes a difference to have a leader of the opposition. He, he's got a tricky task. Uh, he can't stand there in the chamber of the House of Commons with lots of people around him and get almost a tangible sense of support that way. And he's, as I said, the tone question, and particularly when the prime minister was very ill, is you know, a, a difficult one. But I think he's he's made a good start. And it does it does matter to have people keeping asking, has the government done this as well as it as it can? Now, there are going to be all kinds of, not just a crisis as fast moving as this, and with so many things uncertain and so many things unknown about the nature of the disease itself, its, it's infectiousness and its mortality rate and so on. There are going to be all kinds of things that where you look back and you think, actually, well, with the benefit of hindsight, I wish we'd done this or that. But equally, there's some things that the government probably could have managed better. And, and some it's managed well. I mean, the expansion of emergency care in hospitals. And then the Nightingale Hospital was on top. That's one thing that's worked. And so the NHS hasn't fallen over in its emergency capacity. But you want the opposition there the whole time because the government can point out the things that have gone well. You really want the NHS, you want the opposition just prodding at all those things that have not gone so well. So, yeah, we got an opposition again. It helps. The other group that's meant to hold the government to account, I suppose, is the media. Do you think the Brexit, the whole Brexit debate over the past few years has undermined their capacity to do this in a way that people think is reliable? No, I think the phenomenon is bigger than that. I mean, the media is vast. It's plural and really, in a sense, includes social media. But maybe that's not what you meant in your question. No, I think the way the media polarised over the Brexit debate reflected the way that people are becoming polarised and much more polarised in their opinions. And social media actually supports that. People can live in their own world of their, their own colouring, if you like, whatever their political views. Having spent a long time in the media, it's not as powerful or unified uh, a thing as it might sound in that one brief word. It's much more diffuse. It tends to reflect people's views rather than definitively shape them. The administration is very keen to bridge the divides in the UK, something we've talked about already. How significant do you think is the government's idea to move the House of Lords to York? How significant is that idea in the wider picture of devolution across the country? It floated around in Christmas when all kinds of post-election sort of quite radical ideas were bubbling up and you haven't heard much about it for quite a long time. And anyway, with the whole of Parliament out of Westminster and happening virtually, I think in a way the coronavirus <laughs> crisis has removed the um, interest in that idea because Parliament isn't anywhere really. But all right, it was a symbol. Uh, symbols matter. Uh, it was an interesting symbol. But I think much more than where the House of Lords is, it matters what it does and does it do it well. And making sure that it can actually scrutinise things well matters far more than, than where it is. I, I thought it was an interesting symbol. I, I rather welcomed it. But I thought it also rather missed the point of devolution, which is not to take bits of central government or institutions and scatter them around the country. It's to really devolve powers and money that at the moment rest in central government. And that to me is the main point. And actually relocating key institutions that are at the centre of our, our governmental system is symbolic, but I think besides the point and, and really conceals the, the fact that much devolution may not be happening, that powers and, and money, ability to raise money or vary tax or something is not being distributed out there. Could it be seen as, a, not a ploy, but a, a notion to create sort of stronger links across the country that people think, feel they have with Westminster, with the centralised system? Yes, no, no, ab absolutely, absolutely. And uh, as I said, symbols matter, and I think that was a, an interesting one. But you might say that 
people would actually feel more connected by Parliament using this uh, the, the coronavirus to move to um, remote voting, which it never wanted to do, and therefore allowing MPs, particularly those who are not on committees, to spend much more time in their constituencies, much, much, much more, uh, that they wouldn't have to be shuffling back and forth the whole time. Um, you, you get rid of a whole layer of, of, of having to spend time in London and all the arguments about expenses that go along with that. And those MPs who say, look, I really want to be a constituency MP. I want to devote my time to the people around here and I'm going to vote 11pm at night or whatever, but I'm going to vote remotely. You know, that could tra transform things and transform people's sense of the accessibility of their MP and equally digital constituencies. I mean, not everyone and certainly not the poorest and oldest and youngest people are have access to video and uh, and so on but it could let mps reach their constituents many more of their constituents by video surgeries than they've been able to and i think you hear some mps talking about this now and i think it would be great if parliament seized this chance to really think about how mps could do their job differently because there's so many different ways of being an mp uh, you can try and be a minister you can try and have a career on the committees, which is much more satisfying than it used to be, but uh, at its best is, is, is a really substantial job that has a lot of influence on how legislation is made, and at its worst is just a bit ho-hum. But you, I think you know, allowing people just to make more of their uh, access to their MP would be, would be great. And so that you know, could do more than actually putting the House of Lords in York, but what about Cornwall or Wales or... Newcastle or uh, stuff, you're not going to feel as, as close to it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's symbolic, but there are other things that commit, could have a bigger impact. I think there are lots of obvious benefits of taking MPs out of out of London. The, the childish shouts across the Commons might be one of them. But do you think it would make discussion and political debate about policy and committee work harder? Might it make policy making in general a bit less effective? Uh, there's a reason why things are centralised. Yes. And that's because people you know, need to talk to each other. It can be harder, as the cabinet itself seems to have found, to make decisions and explore things by endless video meetings. It's still, you know, you need proximity for some things, uh, or it's, it's some decisions and some discussions certainly help from that. And that's why I don't think taking things that are useful part of centralisation and distributing those around the country is necessarily a good thing. You, you want to work out what your key discussions and people are that you need in one place and then actually work out what things can be moved that are real substance uh, to different areas. What do you think about the idea of having multiple representatives per constituency, maybe some to stay in the constituency and the other to be to represent the constituency at, at a policy national level? Oh, that sounds like a great idea for a PPE essay. I think we're quite a long way from there. Do you think it would be a practicable idea? Not from where we are now. I just, we're not there. An awful lot of things. It, you know, it takes time to change anything. You really can't in government change very much. And on this constitutional front, it takes ages to get anything done. And you need a real cause that prompts change. Government had a lot of constitutional reform. You know, it wanted to have a convention on this and all kinds of discussion about all kinds of things. And that's gone very quiet because there is a greater emergency. And even though this is a pretty spectacular emergency, there is usually something more pressing than constitutional reform. But sticking with it, obviously the Lords is an effective check on the government, but with more people, more laws being created and it doesn't seem very difficult to add loads of laws of your own political persuasion to the House. 
How do you think, how effective do you think it is becoming as a check on government? I don't think the party appointments have done anything for its reputation at all. I think people look at the kind of honours lists and who, who rocks up in the Lords and probably recoil from a lot of that. And even though they might accept that uh, many of the Lords have a lot of expertise and could be involved in scrutiny and stuff, it has become a machine for party patronage. As I said, I don't think that helps its reputation at all. It does do quite a lot of scrutiny. I think one of the weaknesses of our system is the lack of scrutiny in the Commons of legislation going through. That really is a weakness. That's really from lack of time. I mean, there are committees that do exactly that. But it tends to be the Lords, simply from having more time, gets to grips with some of the legislation and the unforeseen effects of things. But it would be better if it were more systematic. It almost certainly needs to be quite a bit smaller. And that's something that many, many people have written about, but it's uh, funny how tantalising uh, a few more appointments uh, becomes to whoever the Prime Minister is of the day. Do you think Tony Blair was on the right track with getting rid of as many hereditary uh, lords and as many Tory ones, to be honest, as he possibly could? I think the hereditary principle was um, indefensible at that point of the late 20th century, uh, and so he was absolutely right to do something about it. And having said that constitutional reform takes a long time. It's amazing how much Tony Blair did get done. That devolution, and so on. They did it quite fast. On the other hand, independence is hard to come by, and uh, the hereditaries were at least independent. Those who were engaged in the institution at all, some weren't. The fear is obviously that you get people put in by the party machines and who take that over. And I remember one um, Middle Eastern um, ambassador saying to me at the time, "Oh, is that what Tony Blair means by democracy? Getting rid of one House of Parliament and replacing it with his friends? Or well, we could do that tomorrow." There's a grain of truth in that jibe that to replace people unconnected with the government, even if, you know, a, a system absolutely indefensible, a modern democracy, with people who are appointed by governments, um, takes you into something very, very different. I think the fear of government pursuing political points and political advantages is quite significant. It's quite hard to get out of. Is that inevitable or do you think the government, people and other actors can solve what might be perceived as quite a significant problem? I think it's inevitable. I, I, I don't even think I would call it a trend. Parties are there obviously to promote the ideas and the agenda that they believe in, but also uh, inevitably what was there to, to fight for their side to be in power, to be able to get more of their, their stuff through. No, you can do it with constraints on that. So you could do it with constraints on appointments, um, agreements about how those people were vetted and so on. There's room for lots and lots of essays on this. To talk about the House of Lords, you really have to go into, you know, the whole method of appointment, not just the vetting panels for the system that we've got at the moment. Should members be elected? Should they be elected on party lists? Should they have regional attachments or not? I think those all things are terribly interesting. You end up with very, very different characteristics to a chamber without that. And... You know, I think, I mean, to, to get into that whole debate, you really need to stand back and say, what is the point of the, of, of the second chamber overall? What are the functions it's supposed to do? Is it, a, is it supposed to be a check on the, the, the government? Is it supposed to be scrutinising and so on? What about the devolved administrations? Do they need second chambers too, if, if the second chamber is so important? So I think it's a huge debate and it's one that's very hard to answer with a kind of piecemeal, well, what about a bit of this or what about a bit of that? And looking beyond coronavirus, is the government going to just be able to go back to its priorities of, of levelling up and Brexit, or is that going to be significantly delayed? It's a really, really good question. Um, we don't know. Uh, I mean, the suspicion must be that just sheer attention as well as money, coronavirus has 
taken up a lot of the space and the energy that the government wanted to devote to the levelling up agenda. And of course, the other part of its programme is Brexit, perhaps dominating all the others that it was um, elected on. And that has been, you know, attention has been enormously diverted from that. And you've really, as the government is saying, got quite a gulf between uh, the government and the EU at this point, and all kinds of deadlines looming in, uh, by June as to whether there are supposed to be delays, or whether people ask for delays, more time for negotiating some kind of trade deal. Yes, attention has, has been diverted. We just don't know. And part of the awkwardness, if you like, of coronavirus for the, for the government is that while it obviously covers the whole country, much of it has been focused on London because that's been the part of it. And yet that's absolutely not where the government wanted to be focusing its energies and money. It really wanted it to be. And as the Prime Minister has said a lot to the people working with him, you know, what can I do for the people who voted for me? So, you know, it, it is massively unhelpful. The government is going to have to try. I, I'd be surprised if they jettison that agenda. And they certainly said with Brexit that we're sticking to deadlines. We have to see, have to see what that means. So they're going to want to say something about the rest of the country. Um, but it's been, it, it hasn't been zero so far. It's been very much, uh, but it's been brisk. It's sort of, yes, get on, build HS2. Uh, we said it once, don't need to say it again. But I think we really have to see what the levelling up agenda is going to mean. Do you appreciate the, the idea of just sort of sticking to its commitments, building HS2, sticking with Brexit? Other governments might have been tempted to delay. I suppose coronavirus could have been seen as a free pass in that respect for the government to delay big projects like Brexit and HS2. Things have got delayed, and I think probably rightly. The, the climate change summit in Glasgow, November, that's been uh, put back a bit. Uh, defence review and security review, that's been put back. Spending review of, of what Whitehall is going to spend for the next three years, that's been put back. A lot of, lot of stuff has gone back, and I think that's, that's absolutely right. So they've tried to spare some of the things that they care most about, and Brexit big infrastructure, particularly benefiting the North, uh, and so on. And we'll just have to see what shakes out. But they have uh, deliberately uh, put back some of the stuff. I guess the big one we're waiting to see about is Brexit. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if there were more time, but that is so adamantly what the government has not said. In fact, it said the opposite. So um, I, have to, I have to see they really double down on something that people thought they might fudge. The other thing that I wanted to ask about was the reports of Dominic Cummings attending the SAGE meetings. Do you think that's a significant uh, breach of protocol or is it not no. something that we should be worried no. about no i think they should publish the names of the sage scientists they're probably not the minutes for some time because you do want you do want the, the room for disagreement uh, and lively healthy disagreement uh, in that kind of committee no i don't i don't think that I don't, I don't think that matters nor do i get any sense that he's intervened in the discussions of that committee and is you know someone who respects um lively scientific debate. But the government has made a great deal of saying that we uh, take scientific advice as the basis for what we're doing, perhaps too much, and not, not allowing as much room as it might have done for the room that political judgment, that politicians themselves have to weigh one factor against another. But I don't think in terms of liaison that that matters. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't. 